Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Happy Halloween, listeners, or happy belated Halloween, as it were, since you'll probably be listening to this at least a day, if not maybe in the following week after the holiday. But we are recording on Halloween night, and we hope that you had an enjoyable holiday if you do partake in festivities around the spooky season. Anyway, on with our normal intro. As usual, I'm Aaron, one of your hosts, and here with me to chat about Edgar Wright's latest is my best friend and co-host, Patrick. Boo. There you go. Short and sweet, boo. Right. I like it. Also, this is the Feel and Film podcast that you're listening to. I We always say that when we start off. I'm not sure that we need to do that. But hey, just in case you're, you know, took a, took a wrong turn and you ended up clicking on the wrong button and you don't mean to be listening to us at this time, well, hey, that's what you got. And we are grateful that you're here. As I was saying, we're going to be talking about the new film, Last Night in Soho from Edgar Wright. We are going to spoil the heck out of the movie, and this is one of those films that you do need to go into and be surprised by. It's got some twists and turns and mysteries. It's a lot of fun to figure those out along with the film, and so please don't listen to this until you get a chance to see the movie, because we've been waiting (laughs) to talk about this, because specifically the ending is worth chatting about. If you listened to Coles and I on Feeling Film Plus, when we reviewed the movie, we we mentioned this, how much we wish we could kind of go into detail, but we just weren't able and we wanted to be able to save you guys that experience for yourself. So this is your spoiler warning. You've heard it. Proceed at your own risk. Patrick, before we talk about the movie, I do want to reminisce just a bit. So way back when we started the podcast in 2016, we started to make friends uh, in the movie podcasting world. We were doing a lot of guest appearances and trying to have people on our show. It was one of our ways to grow the show's uh, exposure and also just to help build the feel and film community and the Facebook group that still exists now, of course. And I remember Edgar Wright being a big part of that. So I was down in Arkansas I believe I was down with my kids and we were going on a cruise. And so we were coming through. Is that what we were there for? Is that right? Yeah, it was essentially a Arkansas cruise, Arkansas. And we were trying to figure out, do you and I connect that first week before you go or when you get back? And I remember it was when you got back because you gave me this sick, like not Aboriginal, but like Mexican football helmet oh, the, of the, the LSU Tiger. And, yeah, uh, it was a sugar skull. Sugar there you skull. go. Yeah. There you go. And I remember you giving it to us whenever I whenever I uh, came down to meet you in Hot Springs on the way to <laughs> Texarkana, where we were going to meet up with another podcaster. <laughs> yep, that's Chad right. Over at, uh, over at Cinescope to actually do this thing where I don't think we ever did it again and not because we didn't like it, but because there's just not the opportunity to, but we went to the movie together, which was really amazing because you what and I movie never, was that? That would be, the, ba- that would be top, baby. Driver. Yeah. yeah. Baby driver. Yeah. This is the reason we're talking about this, right? Edgar Wright's last major film. Right. Right. 
Edgar Wright. Uh, sorry, that's <laughs> getting punny there. Anyway, yeah, so we, we met up with him, watched it, and then proceeded to go to a Starbucks where we then recorded our hot take conversation. Yeah. I would say live. It was live to us. It wasn't to the people listening, but it was very much a really interesting experience. I had a blast. And I think Chad and I, at some point this year, we have been making plans to potentially meet up again in Texarkana to go see West Side Story because he and I absolutely love that musical. I don't know because my wife wants to go see it as well. So it may be a two-time feature for me because I'd still like to do that with him, but I think he wants to go see it opening weekend. We'll connect at some point to kind of get the details lined out. But yeah, that was a pretty distinct podcasting experience for me, I know, just to get a chance to hang with you, obviously, get to see a movie with you, but also get a chance to podcast face-to-face uh, with each other, along with another fellow podcaster in the community. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, and it was pretty wild. And looking back on it, I don't know that I could do it again, because I've become so obsessive about quality, and I mean, we're not perfect by any means. We don't have like high production value, but it's something that's always on my mind, and I'm very meticulous about you know getting it as good as I possibly can. And that recording, man... I'm almost scared to go back and listen to it. It was episode 65, in case you do want to go back and listen to that Baby Driver episode. But that Starbucks was so loud. Like, I don't know what I was thinking. I really don't even know. I We were trying to think of somewhere that had Wi-Fi, obviously, free Wi-Fi, that we could just go to late at night after seeing this movie. And we roll into this Starbucks. We ask if we can borrow a table in the back. So they put us as close back, you know, away from the grinders as they could and we're near the bathroom. So then we got people walking, you know, past us and we're like almost, I want to say parallel to where the drive-in window was as well. And then we've got this mic and we just put the mic in the center of the table. And I can't remember, do we use a laptop? I guess we used a laptop at the time, broke out a laptop and just sat there and managed this recording. And yeah, I mean, wow, what an experience, super fun. Super cool. Chad Hopkins, yeah, Cinescope Pod. I don't know if it's even still active. And he dumps episodes every once in a while. He's been doing a lot of side projects. He did a, a whole podcast doing the Office series, going through that episode by episode. And I know he has another podcast right now that's going through Avatar The Last Airbender episode by episode. So check those out. Look him up. But yeah, what what a cool experience. It just every time I think about Baby Driver, I remember this experience more than I remember baby driver because i didn't love love that movie i liked it but that experience sort of elevated it you know that memory that we have with it so anyway here we are Edgar wright's next film uh very different than i would say pretty much anything else he's done maybe Shaun of the dead is the closest in a sense just because it's got some horror-ish elements but it's very unique i think for him story-wise plot-wise and I wasn't sure what to expect. I, I We both got excited about this movie when we found out it was announced because we generally like his stuff and his style. And so it's intriguing to see what he's doing next. And then we found out it was kind of going to be a horror movie. And I actually was about to balk on it personally. I was really waffling. I, I wasn't sure whether or not it was going to be something for me, something for you. Ended up giving it a shot. I really, really liked it and had a blast. So I thought, okay, I'll recommend this to you. I was pretty nervous recommending it to you 
because of some very gory reasons. I guess we're a spoiler territory because the film gets so bloody at times and so kind of in your face with the scares. I wasn't sure how you were going to take some of the slasher parts of the movie. And so I remember this distinctly when you came out of it, I got a text from you and it said, I really enjoyed that movie. Dot, 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 I think. Something to that effect. And so I wanted to start there. Take me through, I guess, the fact that I recommended this to you. How did you feel going into this? And what was kind of your initial, like, general reaction coming out? Well, let me give you a little primer first. Over the last several years, I've not become a horror obsessed by any means. I'm not necessarily going to dive into the latest paranormal activity or anything like that. There are definitely movies out there that I don't gravitate toward. I have learned to appreciate 80s horror a lot more and really not the movies themselves, but what they try to do. And so having gotten a chance to watch the Friday the 13th um, Tales from Crystal Lake, the, doc the definitive history of the Friday the 13th franchise, as well as the Nightmare on Elm Street documentary, which both are really, really good. I've learned to kind of accept what gore is. Now, when it comes to like torture porn, things like Saw, that kind of pushes my buttons and I'm not really into it. But the things that I saw in the trailer for Soho, knowing Edgar Wright the way I do, not personally, we don't have lunch or anything, but knowing his style, knowing the way he tells stories and how he keeps a really interesting flavor to his stories, I was optimistic that it wasn't going to be a horror movie. It was going to be a movie with horror elements to it. And that's what I got. So when I left the theater, my dot, dot, dot was really more about just processing what I'd seen. Not in a sense of like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that happened, or I can't believe how gross that was, or I didn't expect that. It was really more about, I feel like I need to take 24 hours, and if I'm still thinking about the movie, at least more so than I would think about just going to you know, Ghostbusters or something that's just fun or popcorn filler. I came back thinking after those 24 hours, yeah, I really did enjoy that. And I think it's because of what Wright does with the story. Always, uh, I always get interested in stories that take elements, take style, and don't just throw it on the screen for the sake of visual fun. They put it on screen in order to tell a story with a lot of deeper themes. What I think Wright does in Soho is he combines, in a way, it's almost like watching Aquaman. So James Wan, big horror guy, throws some horror elements into Aquaman, but not in a way that makes you feel like you're watching a horror movie. They're appropriate. And so when we get into that sort of tonal shift about a third of the way through the film, I have to kind of settle in because we get a couple of small jump scares here and there, which I'm not really a big fan of, of course, I'm getting better at it. But as the movie progressed, I really found myself into the story of the main characters and watching how Edgar Wright's style elevates what he's trying to say and the story he's trying to tell. And it seemed to me after I finished watching the movie, that those horror elements, the way he used the horror elements was appropriate because that kind of theme, that kind of subject matter 
it can be pretty horrific. And I don't know that I've ever seen the types of things that we're looking at here of sexual abuse and rape and things like that in a way that are depicted in a horror aspect of it. And so that's what I think I really, really liked about the movie. And I say liked, and I think this is where my hesitation was because I didn't like what I watched. But I kind of want to watch it again so that I can experience it knowing what's coming up and catch more stuff. But I kind of feel guilty because I don't want to experience all that again. And I think that's a testament to Wright's filmmaking and his his writing in this whole screenplay because it does hit you pretty emotionally. You You start feeling a multitude of different things. Not that I felt like the guy's raping her. Not that I felt like I had some kind of masculine guilt but because it's hard to process it's hard to process what am i watching how do i how am i supposed to feel and i think that's what makes the movie so good is it leaves you kind of asking those questions who's the bad guy how do we feel about this and all those things were were still sitting with me and so after a day or two sleeping on it and getting ready for the podcast i really came away saying that was really good and i think it was good not just because it was stylistically pretty great and entertaining but it also is a well-told story. Well, I'm glad. I'm really glad that you enjoyed it and that I wasn't a complete failure of a friend in recommending it <laughs> because of the parts that were a tra- you know tough at times for you. And just like they were for me, it was there was some shock to my viewing. Like I was not expecting certain things to go down the way that they did. Um, I think it's fitting, though, that we are talking about this, obviously, on Halloween and that it's opening this weekend. I think it's really cool that a movie like this can open that's not billed directly as a typical kind of horror film, like, a, you know, Antlers with you know, Paranormal Activity, Next of Kin, whatever, the new Scream, which is oddly not coming out anywhere near in October. But movies like that, right, that are very clearly, a you know, Halloween Kills came out within a couple weeks ago. It's all specifically kind of, towards this evil <laughs> supposed spooky season and and this movie fits in a different way you know it's got its gruesomeness but it doesn't get there for a while and it's more like a psychological horror i think for the most part and i personally just adored the first hour of this movie i will say this the first hour of the film is among the best parts of a movie I've seen all year. I mean, this thing was like seriously trending in five-star territory for me. Like if it had just stayed, I don't know. I don't know what it would have had to do for the second half completely. I can't project, but it was that type of feeling going through the film in the beginning. And it's all about nostalgia and it's got all this style and it's very dreamlike It's very ethereal, the way that we see Eloise and Sandy, and she begins to kind of interact in that world. It's it's very, it's very curious. It's mysterious, but in an interesting and intriguing kind of way. And of course, midway through, we start to realize things are not quite what we seem, and that maybe we are living in more of a ghost story of sorts. And... I wondered how that tonal shift specifically affected you because it it was hard for me. And and maybe you already answered this when you said you kind of want to go back and watch it knowing what you know. I'm the same way. 
and that's the reason for me is that I would like to watch the movie and kind of almost be able to analyze in a way that first half while I know what it all actually is taking place and then be ready for the jump to where we start seeing these ghosts like killing people and attacking people and chasing people and kind of be ready for that that change and i wonder if i would enjoy it more or not but but it was definitely a tonal shift for me that i found very jarring and it was different than what i expected the film to be and i'll tell you real quick i thought that from the beginning of the movie when we're introduced to eloise in that very first scene which is amazing and i'll just want to heat my praise real quick on thomas and mckenzie because I think she is an absolute superstar. I think she's freaking incredible. Uh, she was in, I want to say, Leave No Trace. And she's been in a few other things here and there. But this is like her movie. And it's largely marketed with Anya Taylor-Joy as kind of the, the big face of it. And that's understandable because she blew up last year with Queen's Gambit. And she's got the sex appeal. And Thomason's character of Eloise is very much your girl next door. You're kind of pure character to the sensual side of Sandy. And so I get it, but I just performance-wise, I thought Thomas and McKenzie was absolutely flipping marvelous throughout and the way that she handled walking this very thin line that told that me, for me, I from the very beginning believed that there was a 89% chance that this was all in her head. She sees her mom in her room. She's still talking to her mom. She's grieving. I thought that she was going to be, you know, imagining all of these things. I thought that Sandy was her mom somehow and that she was walking through the story of her mom. That's kind of what I gathered at the, you know, beginning of her journey into this dreamlike world. And it was really interesting that it didn't go that direction because she is still seeing her mom even at the end of it and we don't really take into account as much as maybe i would have liked her mental health because i think she's got i don't want to say some screws loose but she's got some stuff to work on <laughs> inside <laughs> because i don't think she's quite grounded in in a way that is healthy and i it led me to like that's one of the reasons that the tonal shift for me was so jarring is because I thought we were going to stray even more into the psychological horror nature of her own mental well-being versus a kind of on the nose and, and I don't want to say boring, but, you know, very routine ghost story of just like, you know, those places haunted. <laughs> and I wasn't expecting that. So it threw me a bit. And did it kind of, did you have a presumption going into the point where it revealed itself as a ghost story like I did? I didn't have a presumption. I think seeing the trailer, I knew it was going to be gruesome. Uh, even if you guys see our screenshot or our banner for this one, it looked like, oh, great, this girl's going to go nuts and like just start killing people. I knew that there was going to be some kind of breakdown with her. I knew that she was seeing this vision and the only shots that we see of her in the trailer are as a blonde. And so I'm like, oh, wow, is this like an alter ego? What's going to happen here? 
So for me, the shift wasn't jarring because it felt kind of gradual. Not that it made sense, but it did feel gradual in that the beginning of the film, we see her dancing in her room, which by the way, let me say just as a sidebar, for those of you who still go to movies and aren't critics and get these things for free, um, Regal is actually shortening some of the trailer time. I thought I was actually going to be on time to the to the movie by being 20 minutes late to the movie because that's how long trailers usually are. This one was only 10, so I kind of missed the first five or 10 minutes of the movie. It didn't miss much. The credits were still rolling. But what I saw was Eloise dancing in her room to 60s music in this really interesting dress made of newspaper. And her wall was filled with 60s iconography. She's listening to records. And so I'm thinking, oh, is this movie taking place in the 60s? And it's not until she gets into a car that I clearly recognize as something from our decade that I realized, oh, okay. So I was a little thrown by that thinking, okay, are we, what decade are we living in? And I think that was intentional, Aaron, because later on the landlady <laughs> is surprised that she listens to that kind of music. She's made fun of because she listens to that grandma music. I think as somebody says, and so when we get to the point where she meets this ghost, the, the tone itself was sort of a, it was a dip significantly in terms of like, like fun, high, cool. It's going to be like a journey to, we're getting into the dark world now. And I didn't feel like it was inappropriate. I think what threw me was that the only time we actually got connection with her mom was at the start and at the end. And I think that was really only used as a caveat to show that she's not all there. I think Wright could have done better by that because her mom didn't really have much of a significance in the story. I mean, she got pulled back to England because of her mom and her relationship with her grandmother. And then at the end, we get that eerie mirror shot where <laughs> her mom is replaced by Sandy. And that left me with some question marks of like, wait, what's happening here? And so at that point, I'm thinking, I'd like to go back and watch this and see psychologically, is she really kind of projecting all this? Is it a combination of a ghost story or not? Because if it's a ghost story, I almost feel like we're playing with time at that point because she's going back experiencing what Sandy did. She interacts with Sandy at some point in some of these visions. And you'd think that the landlady who is the elder version of Sandy would have known that. And so that's kind of when it gets weird, but it didn't change how I felt about the overall story. Tonally, I think it was appropriate, but I think we were left with a couple of MacGuffins in the form of like her mom that I think Wright used to say, yeah, she's still she sees things. She's not all there. We're going to use that as a premise to get her into this world, because I think that would have been different if somebody who was all there would have experienced that. Character development. Right. It, it's, right. it's there for backstory and character sure. development. And and I agree. And I think you're right. It does. It gets her into that world. And I think it's intentional, too, to make you wonder about her state of mind. I just don't know that that worked perfectly for me because it because that movie kind of became the movie that I wanted to see more than the movie that I ultimately got in the second half. I just I really was curious more about 
this seeing her mom than I was about seeing the ghost in the random house that she just happened to end up in because there was no real connection between those two things. And so that was just one of my, you know, driving factors for a little bit of the waffling I had walking out of this. I mean, it's interesting because I, it was, I came out of it on a high and I have thought nothing but positive thoughts about it ever since. And I almost find myself feeling like a real film critic because I'm criticizing it while telling you at the same time, but I actually loved it. <laughs> and, and I can, this is one of those movies where I understand why it's been so divisive as well, just because of not only these tonal shifts, but also the ending. It's a movie that some people have really enjoyed and other people have been like, mm -mm, nope, not cool, not gonna go for that. And I can't fault them for that at all. I wanna talk about the nostalgia aspect because like you said, so she's obsessed with the 60s. The soundtrack is absolute fire if you enjoy this kind of music. As always, it is going to be in an Edgar Wright film. That is something he loves himself and he pours himself into his movies in that way. And she's wearing this newspaper dress and she wants to be a fashion designer. It's so well, like the production value, production design of it is so awesome. It's so robust and really captured. And I think the style of him, his way of shooting a movie, it's, it's glossy and it's got this like shimmer to it. And I think it was a really interesting way to look at this person in London and going down this path that she wanted to go to and so it you know it's interesting once you still maintain that sort of cinematography style when you're doing the ghost story because it it's not what you're used to seeing when you see ghosts it's very different visually speaking but anyway from a nostalgia standpoint right we're experiencing this person who is obsessed with it and Edgar Wright himself said something that I found to be very interesting. He said that for him, the movie is a cautionary tale about nostalgia and the illusion that there ever was, quote, good old days. And I, I will read his full quote and then we'll talk about this. He said, the moral of the story is, even if you could travel back in time, you can't have the good without the bad. So it's sort of a cautionary tale for those who are overly nostalgic about the past. There is no perfect decade where everything was good and nothing was bad. It doesn't exist. They like to imagine it was all better before, but of course that's not true. And, you know, this could be summed up in a lot of different nice little phrases like the grass is always greener on the other side. But specifically with regards to nostalgia, I think this is a really interesting thing to explore in a movie because of the way that people do become obsessed with nostalgia when it comes to entertainment. And, you know, you can really find folks who maybe they gravitate towards a certain year or certain decade, whether maybe it's the 80s, maybe it's you, who absolutely loves a certain type of film that was made in this era. And you only see it for the masterpieces that you feel came out of that and then you don't see the complete awful camp or terrible graphic you know design that comes out of things in that same era in the movie world but whatever it is it's really commenting on how someone can fully immerse themselves in this belief and it becomes such a driving 
factor in their personality that they truly don't think the world today compares. And that's destructive and that's not healthy. And it's simply not true. And I, I really thought that that was interesting. And, you know, to an extent, I'll, I'll maybe I'll hold this part, but I want to, I do want to make a comment about whether or not that meshes well with the story he's telling ultimately in the end. But for you, did you, how did you react to this nostalgia piece? Because I feel like that's something that you in particular may gravitate more toward or maybe more meaningful to you than it is to me. I, I don't typically care that much about nostalgia in the same ways. I mean, I have my favorite movies, of course, but you really do have a love of the 80s and all things, whether it's movies, music, you know, design. That is something that I see more of you in. So did you kind of, I don't know, resonate with this at all as you were watching it? I can see how she comes across as loving the 60s. But like most people who didn't live in that era or who lived in there in a different period, there's a myopic sense that anyone's going to have. Who wants to remember the bad and compare it or connect it to a year or a decade? There was so much about the 80s that I was not connected to that I choose to enjoy the things that made me happy. I choose to say I chewed the, you know, lived most of my life with the Goonies and with Superman and with the things that, you know, the Ninja Turtles, those types of things where those are very kid friendly. But there was a lot about the 80s that is awful. You know, the rise of AIDS, um, the Cold War, all this just nasty stuff that the 80s is called the age of excess for a reason. And I don't deny those things. I think that when it comes to appreciating nostalgia as opposed to embracing nostalgia, there's a really fine line because we can look back and say there were parts of my childhood or parts of this decade that were really, really good. And I choose to pull those like, for instance, that's what she does from a fashion standpoint. She's not pulling the crap design from the 1960s because there was there was crap design from every decade. She's really pulling what she sees are classic light. Look at the colors, pink and yellow. These are very positive colors. It's not like the browns and the blacks, which I think this is where Edgar Wright really, really shines. His color palette is so specific when it comes to how he's telling his story. You've got these two characters. I mean, she she moves her hair from brunette to, uh, to blonde, yes, to match Sandy's, but there's something about blonde hair, blue eyes, bright dresses. I mean, this is a La La Land kind of flavor, man. I mean, it's a very bright kind of tone. And then you put that up against the dark alleys, the dark suits, and all the stuff that's happening in these dark clubs. It's very much an interesting contrast. And I think what we see, if he's making a comment about the danger of nostalgia, I would say there's a danger of exactly thinking that one year or one period of a person's life was better than it is now. Because the fact is, we could say the same thing about the future. We don't know what we don't know. I think what's dangerous about the past is that we only know a certain amount of what we know, and we refuse to acknowledge the other stuff. So I can say the 80s were amazing, 
when they really weren't as much as the 90s or the aughts or even now they all have their issues and you could easily make an argument that every decade we're talking about chronology every decade has its issues the 50s were not great i mean how much freedom how much liberty did women have not much <laughs> as much as i love going back and using my Nick at Night roots to watch, you know, Leave it to Beaver, or the Donna Reed show. I mean, these things were not okay when it came to how women were looked at. And yet, these are classic shows. But I think at the same time, we have to acknowledge the fact that nostalgia can be good because we can pull the good from it. Nostalgia can be very much a controlling mechanism. Either it controls us or we control it. So when I look at the past, I can pull what I think is positive about my 1980s childhood experience and bring it forward into a great discussion with someone else who shares that kind of nostalgia. The danger is when I think that my childhood and the way I lived was a lot better than how my adulthood is now, that I'm a dad, that I'm a husband, that I am a people leader. So much is different now, and it's unfair to compare those two. And I think in a lot of ways, this movie sort of depicts that, where you have someone reaching into the past to be inspired, and, at the, and what happens is, she goes so far into it that she feels like that's where she wants to be. And that that's kind of what the ending kind of does to me. It's like, did she reconcile or did she not when she saw this image of Sandy? No, I don't think she did. I think she's now kind of connected to this girl for the rest of her life. And that to me is dangerous because it's now like, is this your muse with all of the tragedy and stuff that you've now been exposed to? Is she now your muse for this? What's that going to do not only to your career path, but what's that going to do to your relationships? At some point, this guy that you're dating, he's going to say something wrong and you're going to freak out. And so I think it's it leaves us with kind of an uneasiness that Wright, I think, is trying to, to leave us with. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. And it's a fun way to frame the story. I like that he has a point. And that he has an angle that he wants this to be kind of, I, I, he doesn't want this to be. I like that he has a way that he views the story that is important to him. The thing that I find very interesting about this movie is that not everyone is going to pick up on that. Not everyone's going to care about that. And does it work as just a piece of kind of entertainment and maybe a revenge flick in a way at some point and a ghost story and all these other things outside of just the fact that it has this nostalgic setting. I think most people are just going to see it as a setting, right? As a stylistic choice to kind of bring a cohesiveness to the place that you want to tell this story and put all of these things into it that people will get excited about and people are probably going to miss the fact that that's nostalgia that is actually hitting them. <laughs> the reason you're reacting to it that way is because he has been so specific about immersing you in this, this music, this poster, this name drop, this dance, this type of drink, this type of club, this type of language, all of those things that make you kind of yearn for those days, which is what sucks Eloise into this in the first place, right? When she sees that light in her dreams or however she's transported into this ghost world, that's 
a whole other story that we don't even need to talk about because there's no answer. But like, however she gets there, like she could, I guess the, I feel like she would have a choice. Like she could go the other direction. She could go back to sleep, right? She could say, this is not something I'm interested in. I have a life. I have school in the morning. The here and now is what's important. But the character herself gets to the point where she's so mesmerized by this world of the 60s and being in it that she can't pull herself out and be at school on time. She can't put her focus on the here and now because she does want so badly to be there. And that is the cautionary tale. That's when it can become damaging for a person mentally and just in all regards to their life. So I love that about it. And, you know, I just enjoy the two different settings. I like going back and forth between them. I like getting to experience. I think Anya Taylor-Joy plays an amazing knockout character Mm -hmm. (laughs) and 60s crooner, you know, and I think she does so much with so few lines of dialogue and that she's able to do that because of her physical acting and, of course, Mm -hmm. her looks. She's a stunning woman and she she is beautiful in that traditional sense that's going to evoke those feelings and so it makes you understand why the men are like trying to go after her i will say this i so when we get to the ending if we can talk about the choices and this is not just the ending but this is like the whole ghost story part is what i want to talk about because this is where i have most of my potential issues with it so first of all i don't really love the visual design of the ghosts and stuff in this. It's non-traditional. I'm cool with the fact that it's there because I think it's interesting to try something new, but the faces being blurred out, obviously we get an explanation for that later on, but there was just something that was not always scary, Patrick. I laughed. I actually chuckled at points some of the during some of the jump scare sequences because I found that they were almost so over the top attempting to be scary looking that they were funny and no i'm not talking about like the blood sections where actual (laughs) attacks are taking place that was a different thing (laughs) i love murder (laughs) (laughs) right you know that's what you're saying right okay just no no that was actually pretty horrific for me but we have this reveal right and so we learned that sandy is actually sandy collins who is the old lady i'll i'll tell you this i didn't see it coming so it surprised me so everything i'm gonna i'm gonna talk about is within the context of i didn't notice until that letter showed up in the mailbox and there's a quick cut to the letter that shows miss collins on the name for the um in the mail and i was like oh my god what if this is Sandy. And then, of course, they show that again and kind of make the reveal of it. So I was caught off guard. And so I got to kind of experience it in a you know, state of surprise, which I thought was really fun and interesting. And we find out that she had trapped these men here and killed all these men. And one thing that sort of bothered me was the twist is, I think... It's a little unfair because there is a scene in the movie where we see Sandy murdered. 
And she very distinctly, if I recall, gets murdered. Like she gets like her throat cut or something. And I found that to be a little confusing because then when we watch the same sequences over again, from her perspective, we see that she killed him, uh, Matt Smith in particular. And then we see that she lured all these men here and she killed all these men. And so at that point, I'm thinking, okay, we are commenting on Me Too era. We're talking about, you know, the unknown sexual abuse of women and how not only did we start off talking about it because we saw the sexual harassment in general that was happening to Sandy and how she was kind of pushed by this culture of powerful men almost into the point where she was ushered into becoming a whore. And now we see her taking revenge. And this is a ghost story about a woman who did this thing to all these men and that's why they're missing and that's why they, they haven't been found and all of these things. And I think the story sets you up to want to feel some remorse for her. But then we have to deal with the fact that Sandy herself admits to the fact that she needs to protect her story at all costs, even if it means killing John, who, by the way, is like my favorite character in this movie outside of Thomas and McKenzie and Anya Taylor-Joy. I thought he was incredible. I mentioned this on our FF Plus episode, too. His name is Michael Ajow, and I loved him. I thought he was amazing. I wanted to be his friend. He was so sweet. He was so kind and so caring, and there are not many people in movies like him anymore. And he was amazing. And all I wanted is for him to live. I actually didn't care what happened to anybody else as much as I cared what happened to him. So there's that. And I can't wait to see what he's in next because I thought he was great. But we see that Sandy doesn't care. Like she would kill him. She would kill Eloise, Ellie, if it protects her hidden secret. And that really flips this on its head. And I think that's where people are having an issue with it. So I wanted to know how it worked for you, because essentially, Sandy's a serial killer. Like, that's what she is. She intentionally lured men there to murder them and hide their bodies. And now she is willing to murder innocent people who have no connection and have done no harm to her in order to protect that secret. Does that, for you, hurt? the message of it being a revenge story about sexual abuse, do those things work together for you or are you more on the other side? Because this is one of those things that like people have completely split on their feeling about the movie of, because of. And so I just wondered how you took in the reveal and like, did it make for a satisfying wrap up to her story, Ellie, that is, or did it leave you kind of wanting something else? It left me not wanting something else, but realizing that this kind of experience is messy. I mean, I think, and this is my interpretation, which I think is what makes movies great, is the interpretation. For me, what Edgar Wright does is he reminds us that the Me Too movement has two sides. That not every victim is necessarily someone who needs to be a victim. That not every perpetrator is a perpetrator because they were born that way. What I mean, Aaron, is that when we look at, I want to address a couple of things that you said. First of all, the the murder 
reversal of Sandy being murdered and then showing it later where she's actually murdering these men. That's to me, I saw projection, a psychological character trait of Eloise. We watch her at the very beginning when she's getting into London, and the first encounter that she has is with that cabbie who is a creeper. And so she has to go into the grocery store to buy a Coke to get away from him. So to me, I think the experience that she has, not knowing if she had any kind of history of sexual abuse by other men, I don't think that's ever said or even indicated, but we see a little bit of a nugget there that she's like, oh my gosh, is this who I'm going to be around? Is this the kind of environment? And so when she gets into this and she starts seeing this ghost story, to me, it's almost like an interpretive ghost story. It's not like she's watching this retelling. She's in this room where supernatural things are happening, but it's not that she's a spectator. She's a participant in this, right? I mean, she's walking down the stairs with Sandy. She's interacting. She's becoming her at some point, which means that interpretation can change. Sandy's vantage point can change based on how she views these men. One of the great scenes that I love is when there's that series of men that are like, what's your name? What's your name, by the way? And she keeps changing it. And eventually you could see what you mentioned, Anya's body expressions, the way in which she emotes. You can see how she's just getting lower and lower and lower and just more like whatever. And then it cuts to these dance sequences where she's just more immersing herself in that. And so we get to that scene where it appears that she's being murdered. Well, absolutely. When you couple what older Sandy says, I died a hundred times in that room. I died over and over again. That's what we see. We see the experiential side of her being raped, her being abused. At the same time, we now know the truth and those things almost get blurry. And I think that, I don't think this is a commentary on the fact that we can't trust the Me Too people or we can't trust anybody. I think it's the fact that there is nuance to almost every story, that you cannot box in a person and say, oh, that person did that one thing. Let's just write them off. They're completely tainted and they will never have any kind of redemption. And I think what Edgar Wright leaves us with is that one, guilt will never bring you any kind of satisfaction or satisfying that guilt with revenge. If there's no forgiveness, either by a person for themselves or towards the people that have hurt them or anybody, it's just going to be a cyclical thing. And you're covering up and covering up and covering up. As you said, she murdered these hundred guys and she stuffed them in this building. Weird and gross and yeah, very gross. The fact that she's like, oh, the, the smells cover up the I was and now you know why. Oh. Yeah, gr- oh, nasty, right? Um and the fact, but the fact that she has to cover that up by killing other people, it's cyclical. At this point, what have you actually accomplished with revenge? And I know that that's a trope or that's a theme that kind of gets expressed in a lot of movies that, you know, revenge will never satisfy you. But it's true. It's almost like saying, you know, money will never satisfy you. But it's true. It's just this thing that I think Edward Wright does so well where he, said, he leaves us at the end going, I'm not really satisfied with the fact that she's now seeing creepy Sandy in this mirror (laughs) instead of her mom. I think there's been an interesting switch where it's almost as if Sandy and all the stuff that she dealt with is now embedded in Eloise. 
what that's going to look like, I have no idea, but I feel like the resolution was a dirty resolution and not a clean one. Not like, ah, I'm so glad that there was justice. No, I'm yeah. glad that I'm not in London right now because I would not want to run into her because I feel like she could snap at me at any point. But yeah, I think that's for me, yeah, go ahead. No, I just think it's really interesting the way that you're saying that. And it, and it makes me think about the fact that the, the what you're describing essentially is it changes you. And it's we never talk about that. <laughs> like movies don't usually talk about that. I should say. Usually it's we got revenge. That's the win. We got back at them. Like I would contrast this with something like Promising Young Woman, right? Which is essentially a similar concept. She gets her revenge. They're going to jail. Like, what's the satisfaction? But does your act? How does it affect you? in addition to providing you the momentary feeling of relief or whatever coming from the fact that the revenge was accomplished, it changes you. And so I think Edgar Wright is correct here to show us something because you couldn't have Sandy murder dozens of men by luring them in to kill them in this way and it not have affected and changed her. And so I think it does put her in an interesting light where part of me, part of, I still wants to have empathy for her, right? I, I have empathy for what happened to her, 100%. I have some empathy for the changes that happened to her because of her choice to try and get justice as well. That empathy only goes so far when she begins to exert those results on someone else that's innocent. And that's, like you said, I love, it's messy, it's complicated, it's not simple, it's not cut in black and white, it's not cut and dry. It's very difficult to pick a lane and say it's 100% this way because her actions, you once she begins to affect other people. It's no longer just a matter of how we feel about her. Right. And we, we should be able to separate our feeling of empathy, our feeling of, you know, sympathy for someone and the things they've experienced in addition to holding them accountable for maybe the things they've done that are not worthy of those empathy and sympathy feelings, right? Yeah. So yeah, it, it, it's that's a really good way of looking at it. Well, and it's cyclical too, right? So the the experience that Eloise has had, you could stop the movie at any point and kind of make a conclusion. She sees that Sandy's been killed, so now she's going after is it Jack? I can't remember his name. It's a simple name. I think it was Jack. And that could have been. And this is where I felt like it went from like drama to horror to like true crime that kind of thing <laughs> so we kind of got three different genres in one so if we stop there we can reconcile that we can rectify that we know that story we could also stop it at the fact that when we find out that sandy is the landlady and all these men had to die okay the resolution is she got her revenge and then we can have questions about what well, she justified in that. But I love that Edgar Wright takes it one step further by then cyclically 
pushing that towards Eloise. And here's what I think, Aaron. If you get to a place in the movie where that happens, that cycle has not closed. That circle is, it's going to just continue. It's going to keep, she's going to cycle. Eloise is primed because she's got mental health issues. She now has, let, let's say her mom is her, her beacon. Let's say she's her good luck charm or she, as long as she sees her mom, she's stabilized. Well, now she sees Sandy who has all this baggage <laughs> and though she knows her as an adult now, what she sees is the innocent Sandy, but the Sandy that could eventually take over as she did in the ghost room, I guess you could call it or the murder room, however you want to call it. And so I think what we see at the end of the film is the dangers of a cycle that isn't broken. We don't see any resolution of Eloise saying, wow, I didn't realize that happened. I'm going to mourn, you know, we'd seen her at a grave of, of Sandy and, and put flowers in and walked away with, with her boyfriend. That would have been resolution. But what we see is almost like this continuation of Sandy's going to be there. So what's Sandy's influence going to be either as a ghost or as a projection or as a mental figure in her life? What's that going to do to her? And is she going to be the next Sandy? Is she going to get caught up in something in her world, in this world that's not the 60s, because that's where she actually lives? And is she going to continue this cycle, not necessarily killing men, but when does it stop? When does that reconciliation of forgiving yourself and forgiving what happened going to stop? And who are going to be the victims? Because if Landlady Sandy is, is willing to murder people to keep her story secret, Who's to say that Eloise won't now that she knows all this? And so it's just, that's what I think is really messy is that the loop has not closed. You cannot yeah. stop the cyclical thing that's happening, apparently. if Yeah, and that's one kind of distinctly probably pessimistic view of it or, or way of looking at how it could go. And the optimistic view of looking at how it could go is Eloise is connected to Sandy now and she can't cut free from the potential that Sandy had to be at her best. And it's almost like Sandy, this projection of Sandy is now tethered to her. And it's almost like she feels responsibility to like, I'm going to take you with me and you're going to experience the things you never could because you got caught up in this thing, but I'm going to go and I'm going to achieve my artistic dreams. And now I'm not going to go that route. And you can come with me and we will we will be going through this together. And you're essentially getting your real redemption now because you're getting this happy ending. Yeah, I can <laughs> for see that. A, for a projected vision in her head, which is well, really messed Again, Ellie is freaking messed up. And I think right. we needed to address right. that at some point. <laughs> she is not right. No, she's not. And I got I got kind of vi I got Babadook vibes by the end of the movie where uh, you have this without giving too much away there's definitely this lingering we're in spoiler movie what do you oh, we, oh about the Babadook I was like yeah, we're in spoiler spo territory yeah. what are you talking about <laughs> we spoiled that one a while back but I, I I get that kind of flavor from from this because it's not that it's the fact that you can take it one of two ways you could take in the ending of the Babadook one of two ways depending on how you feel about what's being talked about and I think that you're right. She is allowing Sandy, whether she's a vision or a ghost or some projection, 
to find a vicarious fulfillment in the work that she's doing. So that's an absolutely optimistic thing. I don't know that there was enough there, especially when it came to some of the musical choices, instrumentally, not the 60s music, but the the score shifting a little bit at the very end of like, that seems kind of creepy. Now that mom's out of the picture, Sandy's in it, and you give her a little little hand kiss there at the end. To me, that felt a little sadistic, a little dark. And I was like, oh, okay. So, so it's again, <laughs> the, the last image I see is that I'm going to be a little bit more pessimistic based on all the information I've gotten before. I can see your point. I just think that if you're going to leave us with that nugget, I think the the more pessimistic side of me comes out when it comes to something like that. But both are equally valid. Oh, for valid. sure. I'm just, I'm yeah. 100% just, just talking about it. Yeah, no, I <laughs> agree with you. I think it is meant to lean into a sinister type of direction with the fact that, you know, she is replacing this wholesome grief of her mother with a, with Sandy, with whatever Sandy is at this point. And, and considering what she went through, it's just fascinating to me that that would be the thing. And it's just, I, yeah, I, I keep going back to, she's just, she's really messed up in the head and it can't end up well. Like you said, it's cyclical and something is not going to end up well for her. Like she's not in a place where she's healthy and she is going to go forth. And I mean, she's getting a win in the moment, but Sandy had wins in the moment too. Everybody has wins in the moment. Like she's, you know, got her dress. She made her dress. It looks amazing. She has her fashion show, but it's still trying to reinvent and bring the 60s in with her. It's it's the same thing she's doing with the vision of Sandy. She's bringing the 60s to her now. She won't let go of it. And it, it would have been interesting had she been able to like untether herself from it all completely and change. But you know, I don't know. That wouldn't have been nearly as interesting as a movie. So exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I really like this one. And I like you. I'm really excited to see it again. I plan on buying it. So we'll get the chance. I know neither of us are going to go to a theater again, but um, I do want to own it. And I it's one of those where I genuinely have interest in, myst- in the mystery and the, the details. And just, you know, even if it's not a movie I need to, quote, figure out like a time travel movie or something it's so stylistically appealing to me and I want to hear an Edgar Wright commentary on this. I want to see a production design diary on this. And so I will absolutely be seeking those things out. Did we miss anything that you wanted to talk about in particular? I don't think so. I mean, the, you mentioned the cast just top notch. Um, the, the cinematography is pretty fantastic. I think something that was said in the movie is something that I think is true in real life that you can't really know London until you go to London and that there's a lot there. I, I was talking to a friend of mine that I work with about how we live in central Arkansas and even going up to Northwest Arkansas feels very different and how as people we get so kind of myopically ethnocentric. I don't know if that's the right way to describe it, but we get so used to living in our cities, living in our towns that when we go to some place, even it's like three hours away that, has its own kind of flavor, we need to experience more of that. So like when I came out to Washington to visit you, I got to experience, you know, the world of Seattle for for a few days. Uh, we recently talked to Adam Rakoff. He lives in <laughs> in New York, out near uh, near Washington Heights. You know, it's Lin-Manuel Miranda country. So it's these 
places that we see on the big screen, but we don't know a lot about. And I love when the city or when the setting becomes a titular character, kind of like Gotham City, right? Or Metropolis. They become part of the world that you're telling the story and they're not just eye candy or a setting. So kudos to the cinematography and to the elevation of, of London as a city. I kind of want to visit it, but I'm going to be kind of hesitant about going in any taxis for a while, <laughs> even though I'm not a girl. <laughs> Well, you know, I'm sure that there's probably creepy taxi drivers, no matter what gender you are. You're exactly days. right. And I'm not going to just and... you know, limit that to London. <laughs> I, I, I want to go to London, too. I agree, though, all that stuff. It is a character and it plays into the story distinctly with regards to the nostalgia and the way that Ellie views the city as this perfect thing and is quickly having to reckon with the reality that it's not the dream that she knew and that yeah. she believed it to be well that's all i had too i'm gonna go actually watch paranormal activity next of kin because it's halloween and i want to end the night with a horror movie okay. that's probably bad i'm hoping it's bad enough that it's not scary that sounds terrible but <laughs> i'm a wuss and that's what i'm gonna do so yeah we'll get out of here Sounds good, Aaron. Well, thank you guys for listening. As always, we'll be hanging out in the Facebook group. We'll be hanging out on our Discord channel if you ever want to chat with us or talk about this movie or any others. But uh, keep listening because that's the biggest thing we want from you. Aaron, thanks for this great conversation. We'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.